Is that song really a cover? What instrument are they playing there? What do those crazy lyrics mean? If you're the kind of person who thinks about stuff like that, you're in luck because I've got just the podcast for you. How Good It Is chooses a single song each episode and takes a dive into the story behind the song and the artist who made it famous. I'm Claude Call. You can find me in your favorite podcast software or just point your browser to howgooditis.com. How good it is. Welcome to the second half of the lost episode of Words and Movies. I hope you enjoyed your break. I did. Now, at the end of the commitments, Outspan, along with Derek, is busking um, when Jimmy runs into them and he gives them some change. And as Claude is about to tell you, at the beginning of Once, the movie we're covering next, Glenn Hansard is seen busking. Is this the same character? Well... It's a popular fan theory, and we uh, we don't know the answer to that either, although it would be nice if it was. But anyway, let Claude tell you what happens to Hansard's character after that busking <laughs> as he gives us the plot description in Want to Once. Yeah, we are still in Dublin, and a 30-something busker who is identified in the credits only as the guy... And played by Outspan Foster, I mean Glenn Hansard, he is singing and playing a very worn-out guitar in a shopping district. In fact, let's face it, as you mentioned just a second ago, this is exactly where we left Outspan at the at the end of the commitments. Literally exactly the same place, okay? We see some of the trials that he goes through when it comes to performing on the street, including chasing after someone who's trying to steal the money that he's earned. One evening, he's on the street, and it's completely deserted as he's singing a song that he's been working on. Suddenly, we see that a young Czech immigrant flower seller, who was also namelessly listed in the credits as Girl, and she's played by Marketa Erglova, uh, she's been listening to him and, despite his annoyance, persists in questioning him about his songs. Because he confesses that he doesn't make a lot of money busking, she suggests that he work in a shop during the day. And it turns out that not only does he work in a shop, he works in a vacuum cleaner repair shop. And she's delighted to hear this because her vacuum is broken. So she insists that she'll be bringing her broken cleaner around. The next day, she brings her vacuum to him right there in the street. And they walk back to his place, stopping to have lunch together. She tells him that she's a musician, too. He asks to hear her play, so they visit a music store where she regularly practices the piano. After teaching her the structure of one of his songs, called Falling Slowly, she quickly picks it up and they sing and play the song together, kindling a musical and potentially romantic connection. He brings her and the ailing vacuum back to his father's shop, and on the bus ride home, he musically answers her question as to what his songs are about, a longtime girlfriend who cheated on him and then left. At the shop, he repairs her vacuum and she meets his father, who's played by Bill Hodnett, and he seems kind of indifferent to his son's musical aspiration. The guy takes the girl up to his room, but when he asks her to stay the night, 
She's offended and she leaves. The next day, he apologizes and they quickly patch things up. And over the course of a few days, they write, rehearse, and record songs and they get to know each other. We get one scene involving the girl singing a song she had titled If You Want Me to herself while walking down the street, and it's done in one continuous take. Later on, at a party, people perform impromptu songs, including uh, perform one performed by a trito, where the guy plays his guitar and he sings harmony. Their flirtation continues, but at the same time, he's still thinking about and writing about his ex-girlfriend who moved to London. We see her only through a series of old videos that he's watching for inspiration. The girl encourages him to move there, win his girlfriend back, and pursue his musical career. Invited home to dinner by the girl, the guy discovers that she has a toddler and she lives with her mother. He soon decides that it is time to move to London, but he wants to make a high-quality demo of his songs to take with him and asks the girl to record it with him. She takes the lead as they secure a loan from a bank where the loan officer is an aspiring musician himself, and they reserve time at a professional studio. The guy takes his father's motorbike without permission, and he takes the girl for a ride. She reveals that she's married, although her estranged husband is back in the Czech Republic. When Guy asks her what the Czech phrase is for, do you still love him? And she replies, milieu hector jeste? When he repeats it back as a meaning of asking her, she replies in Czech, but declines to translate. Although the translation is not included in the movie, I looked it up, and in Czech language it means, it's you I love. After recruiting a trio of musicians, played by uh, uh, Gerard Hendrick, Alistair Foley, and Hugh Walsh, they rehearse, and then they go into the studio to record. The studio engineer, Eamon, who's played by Jeff Minogue, thinks that they're lacking in experience, and he's right in that respect, but once they begin recording their first song, called When Your Mind's Made Up, he comes around and starts actively working with them. During a break in the wee hours of the morning, the girl finds a piano in an empty studio and finally plays the guy one of her own compositions, which is about romantic frustration. But before she can finish the song, she breaks down crying. He responds by asking her to come with him to London, but the fact is, he's not prepared for the reality of her mother coming along to help with the baby. That said, he's still smitten, and after the weekend-long session wraps up successfully, they walk home. Before they part ways, the girl reveals that she spoke to her husband and he's coming to live with her in Dublin. The guy asks her to spend his last night in Dublin with him. She says it would only result in hanky-panky, which is what she calls a bad idea, but after the guy's insistence, she ultimately agrees to come over. In the end, though, she stands him up and he cannot find her to say goodbye before his flight. He plays the demo for his father, who, moved and impressed, gives him money to help him get settled in London. Most of all, what we see for the rest of the film has very little dialogue. In fact, we're listening to that first song they, they did together, Falling Slowly. Before leaving for the airport, the guy buys the girl a piano and he makes arrangements for its delivery, then calls his ex-girlfriend, who seems pleased about his imminent arrival. The last thing we see is the girl playing her new piano while her husband gets reacquainted with the baby. We see them from outside her window as she looks out the window, and then the camera swings out to look down on the cityscape nearby. Okay, so as I mentioned when we talked about the commitments, all of the character, all the people who are playing the characters of musicians in the band commitments, except for Johnny Murphy, were actual musicians, although not all of them kept up with careers in music. Most of them did. And probably the most prominent of those, at least 
in the rest of the world was Glenn Hansard before the movie The Commitments and after he's one of the leading members of the band The Frames which is a band that the writer-director of this movie, John Carney, used to belong to until he decided that being in a band wasn't for him. And he decided that writing and eventually directing movies was more of his bag. And once was his first film. And he made this on the cheap. Actually, he was forced to make it on the cheap because originally Killian Murphy was supposed to play Guy, but because he wasn't sure that he could sing Glenn Hansard's songs to the movie, and he was also uncomfortable about the age difference because um, Glenn Hansard and uh, Marquita Urglova are uh, there's quite a bit of age difference between them as well. He opted out of doing the role, and because of that, a lot of the financing fell through. So what Carney ended up doing was a couple of things. First of all, he shot the movie guerrilla style in the streets of London, meaning that he didn't always get permits for shooting on the street. And as a matter of fact, the people in the, the on the streets and in the crowd scenes aren't extras, but professional extras, that is, but people who were actually walking on the street when the scene was filmed. And in the opening scene, when... Uh, someone when a junkie steals the guy's money, actually a couple people tried to stop him. And Carney had to say, hey, look, this is a movie. Uh, he's supposed to get away. Don't worry. He's not really stealing so that they could get the shot that they wanted. And another thing that they did was all the scenes indoors at someone's house or someone's apartment took place in a family member's apartment or um, home. And a lot of the people in scenes like that, in addition to the musicians, which I'm going to talk about in just a moment, were actual family members. That's... Uh, Glenn Hansard's real-life mother, for example, at the family gathering, the one who sounds a little like Marianne Faithful and who looks a little like her, too. Yeah. And then um, the effect of that is that it makes it seem like this handmade movie instead of a big budget thing. And don't get me wrong, there have been big budget musicals that have worked wonderfully. But for this type of story, the small handmade quality of it is what makes it so moving and so powerful at the end. Yeah, I have to agree. This is this is an intimate film. It really is. And 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 and, and we're getting in close to these people. And uh, you know, one of the th one of the scenes that I that I especially like is the one where he first listens to her playing the piano in in the back of the music store. And there's there's basically two shots going on. There's one of the two of them from one angle and then from another angle it's it's again it's the two of them but 
it's very full face on him watching her play. And despite the the little bit of distance that you've got to be because it's a full-size piano, it still has this very close-up, very intimate kind of feel. So that when you get to this shot at the end where we do this big crane view over the over the city, it, it does have a little bit of a bigger impact because we've been in so tight on everything for so long. And now we're just like, here's the big picture. And, and it really, really has a, a strong effect on you. Right. And um, the song that they're playing when she first plays piano is the most famous song from the movie, yes. Falling Slowly, which won the Oscar for best song that year. And... Originally, it was used in another movie that came out before Onestead, but it was actually written for this movie, which is why it was able to dodge the Academy and qualify for Best Song, because, which I was glad about because of all the nominees that year. For me, it was the best song by a long shot. And most of the songs that are in the movie were written for the movie. The only exception to that is the song that Hansard is singing at the very beginning, which is a cover of Van Morrison's And the Healing Has Begun. Uh, recorded but not used in the movie. Uh, he and Erglova also did a cover of Into the Mystic, which you can hear if you uh, scour YouTube one day. And they actually, although um, they were romantically involved during the making of the movie, they broke up afterwards, although they're still friends. Uh, they actually performed together uh, a movie that we've already talked about, I'm Not There. They sing one of the Dylan songs on the soundtrack because Dylan, as a matter of fact, they sing You Ain't Going Nowhere. Uh, Dylan was a huge fan of the movie, as were a lot of critics. And then also Steven Spielberg who makes movies that are diametrically opposed, budget-wise anyway, to the budget on once. But this movie, because it feels so honest in its emotion, even though you could argue that it's basically brief encounter, uh, updated to modern times, it doesn't feel like a knockoff because Arglova and Hansard have great musical chemistry together. And even though they're not actors per se, they also act well with each other. And one way that I want to point out particular is a song that was sort of improvised when he, the guy is telling the girl about the... Uh, about his ex-girlfriend. And by the way, the home footage of his ex-girlfriend that we see is actually John Carney's real-life girlfriend, and I believe uh, later became his wife, though I'm not 100% sure about that. But anyway, um, the song he sings to the girl about his ex-girlfriend, broken-hearted Hoover sucker guy, uh, was made up for the movie, and it's uh, quite endearing to hear him singing, singing it and talking about it before and after he sings that. And that's just an example of the kind of honesty and real emotion 
not just, you know, heartbreak emotion, but also humor that permeates throughout the movie. Yeah, I, 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 as you mentioned, they, they just have that, that, that great chemistry. And oh man, I loved, I loved Arglova, and I really wanted to just see her elsewhere. And she's, she's got very little in the way of credits, frankly. Um, you know, there's a couple of music videos. She performs a lot on soundtracks. Um, but, but as far as like actual films, this is pretty much it. She did this, and she did a voice on The Simpsons, and that that appears to be it for her IMDb listing. And and it's a shame because she was just this this gorgeous little girl I, and she gives me the, the, this uh kind of a young carrie fisher kind of vibe and uh and it was just i there was there was an emotional honesty to to the way she performed and and god that sounds pretentious but i just loved watching her and i just wanted to see her in lots and lots of other things and i was a little bit sad that i couldn't well she and hansard are again primarily musicians not actors yeah. so i think they you know, the acting is the thing they only do occasionally. But um, the uh, other way that this is sort of handmade is, again, as with the commitments, there were quite a few musicians here who appear in the acting roles, even if they're not playing musicians. The guy who uh, the guy the banker who the guy and the girl go to see, uh, who ends up performing, was actually a real musician as well, and so were some of the other people in the movie. And another thing that's sort of interesting about the way the movie was shot is that to save money, it was shot on digital. Now, I uh, I have mixed feelings about digital filming. You know, I understand that it's a good time saver and the technology has progressed enough where it can look realistic. But I am leery of the fact that it means that cinematographers have now fallen close to the status of screenwriters, where now that digitals come around, people think, oh, anyone can pick up a camera and shoot. And no, you have to be trained for it. And unfortunately, the side effect with digital is that, A, that means there's a lot of CGI that can be obvious, and B, there's a lot of messing around in post-production uh, because if they don't get it on the actual shoot, people will assume, oh, because it's shot on digital, we can just fix that on post, and you can't always do that. Having said all that, um, digital filming can also be very subtle. When we do our upcoming Around the World series, we're going to be talking about quite a few films where um, they shot digitally and used a lot of digital effects, and yet it's at the point where you can't really notice it and, because it's done so seamlessly. And while I can't exactly say the same here, there's definitely a look to this film um, that's digital in a way that's not 
entirely looking like film because you can definitely tell the difference. And also because all of the home movies that we see of the guy's girlfriend, which again, as I mentioned, were Carney's uh, girl, real life girlfriend at the time, they look significantly different than the rest of the movie. But the digital photography in this movie comes off fine and not artificial or fake. And the cinematographer on this movie, by the way, is Tim Fleming. So all credit to him and Carney for making this movie look as seamless as it does. Right. Well, that's the thing with, with the digital photography is, is as you say, like anybody can, you know, shoot with their iPhone or whatever, but the problem is it's going to look like it was shot on an iPhone because ultimately you don't have the input of a cinematographer to do the lighting and to look at the colors that are involved and, and, and all of that is going to, to entail. So, I, I don't necessarily see the cinematographer, you know, going going away as such. Um, but there might be a little bit of a uh, an, an adjustment with their role. I mean, the same as you had when you know movies made that transition from black and white to color. You know, some changes had to be made with the way that things looked. Having said that, my issue with with digital photography is is not so much in the photography itself but in the medium that you use because what you've got now is basically an opportunity to do things like essentially an unlimited number of times and one of the things that you get when you're shooting on film is a little bit of urgency because you really don't want to use up the film that you've got you know they they a lot a certain amount of a certain kind of stock to a project, and if you run out, that's going to be a problem because if you have to shoot on a different stock, it's probably going to look a little bit different. So the fact is, there is a lot of incentive to get it right in a couple of takes, no more than a couple of takes anyway, because because of the limitations of the film. Whereas with digital, well, you can do it over and over and over and over and over again, and it's not necessarily going to look any different except that you know, when you get to thus and such, you know, numbered take, the actors are not necessarily going to look as fresh as they did back here in take one. Well, that uh, quote unquote urgency never stopped Stanley Kubrick, but I take <laughs> your points. Uh, one of the things that Carney wanted to do with this movie was to have the music express the emotions of the movie rather than expository dialogue. And that, again, is one of the reasons why the movie works so well. Uh, because what the guy and girl uh, talk about may sound simple on the surface. They don't really dig deep into what they're feeling. They let the music express that. And while I don't know if more obviously romantic dialogue would have necessarily ruined the movie, but certainly the way the music is used to express all those romantic emotions that nonetheless don't get acted on, at least not that we see, that works well too. Yeah, I agree with that. Uh, you know, it, there, there's the. You, 
this is you know, and we again we've talked about this in in other films where where there is a subtext to what the people are saying, and it's it's happening here too. But at least these characters get through the use of their songs, which which by the way are for the most part happening diegetically, and so. It's yes. not. It's not as though like the action stops. They sing their song and everything picks up again as though nothing had happened, you know, or, or like it's or like a Shakespearean aside kind of thing. You know, these people are like, you know, I'm. I need. You know, I need to hear you sing a song. This person sings a song, and the song that they choose to sing happens to be expressing the way that they are feeling at that point. And so, you know, we certainly get it. The people in the scene may or may not get it depending on, on what's going on in that particular, in that particular scene. But it, it's a nice way of underlining the way that the characters are, are what's going on in the, in their heads. Right now, unlike the commitments, there's not a lot of music lore in the movie. You know, no one talks about, uh, for example, when in the commitments, when, uh, they badmouth the shipper van that they're going to use to transport the band and the equipment. Someone calls it a piece of S. And um, Joey says that's what Buddy Holly said about the plane that uh, took him to his death or things like that. But when Guy meets up with a couple of the people that he's trying to recruit to play from in the studio they're all standing in front of a statue of phil lynott uh you may not know the name but he was the lead singer for the irish rock band from the 70s thin lizzie so that is one of the few bits of music lore that takes place in the movie and because it doesn't really hit you over the head which not to, is not to say that the music references and the commitments hit you over the head either. They're mostly played for humor. But because it's not done in a heavy-handed way, it works. At least it did for me. Yeah, I, I think so. And, and, you know, here's the thing. is like you also don't, you don't have to do that every single time, frankly. This can be a little bit of a self-contained kind of thing. And as you mentioned, for the most part, it is. And that's not necessarily a problem. You know, you, it, it, not everything has to be like, you know, just huge levels of music literacy are, are needed to enjoy a film. You know, and we don't, we, the film has enough subtext that we don't have to do stuff like that. Well, I, yes, not every movie needs music uh, trivia in it, but it makes it so much more fun for those who appreciate it. Yeah, I get that. Now, um, Carney uh, went on to make two other music-related feature movies that I've seen, as well as the TV series, which I have not seen. The movies he's done are uh, Begin Again with Mark Ruffalo and Kira Knightley. And Sing Street, which, although it has her in a more supporting role, has Maria Doyle Kennedy in it, as well as Aidan Gillen. And while neither of them are up to the level of once, both are worth checking out. And as I said, they also did, he also did a TV show called Modern Love, which I have not seen, but 
again, begin again and Sing Street are well worth checking out. Do you have anything that you want to add, Claude, before we wrap this up? Uh, no, I've not seen any of his other work at this point, although I do see that Modern Love is a series that's available on uh, Amazon Prime. So I think I'm going to go give that a look. Okay. As far as Once in the Commitments go, both of them are available on DVD. And the two-disc edition of The Commitments has some great extras on it, so I highly recommend that. But if you prefer to stream, then The Commitments is available to rent through uh, Redbox, Amazon, Vudu, Apple TV, and most of the other usual suspects. Whereas Once is also available to rent or stream through most of the usual suspects as well. Definitely worth your while. And what are we doing next time around? Coming up next time, uh, our next episode is called Before the Revolution, where we talk about movies that take place before a musical revolution, which in this case is from 2007, Honey Dripper, written and directed by John Sayles, and from 2013, Inside Lewin Davis, written and directed by the Cohen brothers, Ethan and Joel. And both movies are available on DVD. Inside Lewin Davis is available on Criterion Edition DVD, which I own. But again, if you prefer to stream, uh, Honey Dripper is available to stream for free a lot of places if you're willing to put up with the ads. Uh, Roku Channel, Vudu, Tubi, Redbox, Crackle and Pluto TV and FilmRise, and it's available to stream if you subscribe to Fubo or Plex. It's also available to rent or buy through Amazon, Apple TV, or Microsoft, whereas Inside Lewin Davis is available to stream through Showtime, if you get it, if you subscribe to it regularly or if you subscribe to it through Roku or Paramount Plus. And it's also available to stream if you subscribe to DirecTV or Fubo. And it's available to rent only through Vudu, but it's available to buy through Amazon, Google Play, YouTube, and most of the other usual suspects. Let, let me and, ask you quickly about Criterion. Is, is If a film is available as a DVD through Criterion, is it usually available to stream as well? Uh, through the Criterion channel? Yeah. Not always. Okay. There are a certain selection of movies that are available both on Criterion DVD and the Criterion channel, uh, always available through that. But Inside Lewin Davis is not one of those. Hmm. So it's available to stream through the channel, I guess, whenever they get the rights to stream it. Got it. But uh, for more uh if you have more questions or comments about any of the episodes we've done, including this one, you can um, comment on the Facebook uh, posts that we make where we link to the episode from our website. Or you could email us through wordsandmoviespod at gmail.com. And we also have a Twitter feed. You can leave a comment through there. 
And my myself, Sean Gallagher, am also on Facebook, and I still work on Instagram. And how about you, Claude? Yeah, follow him on Instagram. He'll probably follow you back, okay? As far as me, well, you can find me on the Twitter machine, at Claude Call, and you can also check out my other podcast, How Good It Is, at howgooditis.com. Okay, thanks for listening to our redoing of this episode, and hope to see you next time. Thank you so much for listening, and Rebecca, please take us away. This is your announcer, Rebecca Blackman, with the closing credits. This show was produced by Sean Gallagher and Claude Call, with editing and post-production by Claude, with some help from Mophonic. Audio clips are used under fair use rules for commentary and educational framing. Everything else is copyrighted by Claude Call and Sean Gallagher. The theme music you're bopping along to right now is by Solar Flare and is used under a Creative Commons license. Podcast hosting is provided by Anchor.fm. If you want to support the show, go to anchor.fm slash wordsandmovies and click on the support link. Who knows, maybe they'll even kick a few bucks my way. Thanks for listening. 